0: you ever have those dreams that are just completely real? I mean, they're so vivid, it's just like completely real. Man, there was this book I just read on the book. Well, you know, it was my dream, so I guess I wrote it or something. But uh, man, it was bizarre. It was like um, the premise for this whole book was that every thought you have creates its own reality. You know, it's like every choice or decision you make, the thing you choose not to do fractions off and becomes its own reality, you know, and just goes on from there forever. I mean, it's like, Uh, you know, in The Wizard of Oz, when Dorothy meets the scarecrow and they do that little dance at that crossroads and they think about going all those directions, then they end up going in that one direction. I mean, all those other directions, just because they thought about it, became separate realities. I mean, they just went on from there and lived the rest of their life, you know, just, another example would be like back there at the bus station, you know, as I got off the bus, the thought crossed my mind, you know, just for a second about not taking a cab at all, but, you know, maybe walking or bumming a ride or something like that, but uh, just because that thought crossed my mind, there now exists at this very second a whole nother reality where I'm at the bus station You know, and you're probably giving someone else a ride, you know? I mean, and that reality thinks of itself as this, it, it thinks of itself as the only reality, you know? I mean, at this very second, I'm in that, I'm back at the bus station, just hanging out, you know, probably thumbing through a paper, and I'll say this beautiful woman just comes up to me, just starts talking to me, you know? Uh, She ends up offering me a ride, you know, we're hitting it off, go play a little pinball. And we we go back to her apartment. She has this great apartment, you know, I move in with her. Man, shit, I should have stayed at the bus station.
1: Hey everyone welcome back it's hit factory my name is aaron
2: my name is carly
1: and our guest today uh, is freelance writer and the co-founding producer of upstream podcast robert raymond robbie thanks so much for being here today
3: yeah thanks so much it's great to be here we are
1: big fans of upstream Podcast and the work you do um you're co-founder, I suppose I'll I'll call her, Della, uh, has been on the show already talking about The Matrix, um, which is a great episode for those listening if you haven't yet. Um, And we're thrilled to to get a chance to bring you on the show and talk about another acclaimed prestigious film of the 90s, from the other end of the decade, though, really. Um, Today we are talking about not his debut feature, but his breakout feature, uh, 1991 Slacker, Directed by Richard Linklater, a film that uh, is new to me for all of my purview in in the world of cinema. I had never come to Slacker before. I had always meant to. I think I even tried putting it on at one point in college, um, and it was maybe too drunk to watch it, and got a little bored or or dozed off. Uh, but very very happy that you brought this one to us, Robbie. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your history with Slacker and uh, and why it was one that, that you wanted to talk about.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I had seen bits and pieces of it, but I hadn't seen the whole thing and I've been on this sort of kick recently on exploring productivity and like how we, how productivity sort of like imbues our lives within sort of modern day capitalism. And, yeah, I, I heard Della on The Matrix and I was like, this is awesome. Like, I want to be on this show. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, I was like, what, you know, what would make sense, though, for me to talk about something? I'm not like a movie buff or anything, but um, yeah, I had just, I, I think I had read an article by uh, this this woman named Rosie Spinks, um, which was sort of all about, like, what happened to the slacker, you know? Uh, Mm. We're in this age of like hyper productivity and like influencer culture. But like, what happened to the slacker? And I remembered like that whole era of the 90s, which I grew up in, which was like, you know, it was kind of cool to not give a shit and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I thought, you know, this this movie would be a cool one to sort of dive into. And so, yeah, I, I rewatched it for the whole thing. I was super drunk and (laughs) no, I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) I was, yeah, I watched it and took a bunch of notes. And yeah, I'm excited to talk about it.
2: Every line of dialogue in this movie, I like wanted to write down verbatim. Like each thing that fell out of someone's mouth, I was like agape throughout the entire film. And I think, like, I'm just really pleased. Uh, that you suggested it for several reasons. One of those reasons being that I think watching it 30 years on also adds even more sort of texture and richness to the themes of the film which we can get into but there were moments particularly when I you know heard these nuggets being espoused by these various characters that we meet in the film and just like doing a double take at how relevant and like on the nose all of it is and i think that's an interesting thing for us to talk about at a certain point of just like sort of the arc of austerity politics and neoliberalism in the last like 30 to 40 years and what that's meant for for this type of person but we should probably give a synopsis or, well, I don't even, you know, we I was talk about like, it
1: <laughs> I doesn't was going to say, plot. Uh, you know, any, anything approaching a synopsis of this film is going to uh, inevitably leave out a ton. And, and I think trying to remember each one of the different like vignettes of this film would be uh, a chore in and of itself. So I, I might take a stab at it and just say that, you know, this film uh, is one set in Austin, Texas. Which is where Richard Linklater grew up, went to school. It's populated by dozens, if if not hundreds, of like non actors um, who are all friends and and locals uh, in this you know late '80s, early '90s Austin scene. Um, even a couple of like miniature celebrities, uh, T- Teresa Taylor, the drummer from the band Butthole Surfers, shows up in a. A very famous scene, maybe the most famous scene from from the film. But I mean, really the the, the movie is just a series of characters, uh, all pontificating, espousing their ideologies, um, expressing their sort of waywardness and aimlessness, oftentimes just like buttonholing uh, other unsuspecting like people into discussions um, about life, about art, about creation. About the lack of creation or the desire not to create uh, and and ultimately just kind of stitching together this very impressionistic but really lovely tribute to, as the the title implies, slacker culture. and while not necessarily naming the reasons why it exists or or what it was born from, um certainly painting like a really evocative picture of of that sense of disconnect or that sense of sort of like cultural slide that that was so prevalent in the 90s that gave breed to uh, really an entire swath entire cut of this kind of movie or or these kinds of characters uh, to like you know grunge rock icons like like Kurt Cobain and Nirvana and that I mean and to say more than that is is really to maybe get too descript you know there are so many individual pieces of it that are all just like really really fantastic and and brilliant and the characters are all very interesting. You know, there, There's some like really great aesthetic choices being made here. I, I gravitate towards that sequence with the television-obsessed character where his, uh, his house is just a, a wall of monitors mm. all playing like scenes of destruction and he's literally carrying a TV on his back. Yeah. Um, Robbie, did you have maybe like a or like a handful of particular like vignettes that, that you thought were ones that spoke to you the most or ones that you liked the best?
3: Yeah, I, I do. Yeah, just to sort of like add a little bit to your, your synopsis, which there's not much to add is a pretty good thorough one. But um, one of the things that I really appreciate about about this movie was like there's nothing like explicitly necessarily political. I mean, there are there are bits and pieces of like political analysis that comes through the characters, but it's not like an explicitly political movie, mm-hmm. but it's also got like this overall vibe that it gives off Yeah, it's like sort of hard to articulate in words, but there's this like surreal, weird, menacing quality to it that's like tied in also with this like very 90s sort of laid back vibe as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's, it's interesting too, there's like that character, he's sort of like a conspiracy theorist kind of character who's like, he's talking about all sorts of these like far-fetched conspiracy theories, but he's also talking, I think it's the same character, he's talking about global warming.
4: (laughs) And it's like the
3: 90s. Um, (laughs) So it's like, it's interesting to see that mixed in with the conspiracy theories when it's like, part of this whole movie that I think is so interesting is like, looking back on it, like you said, it's like, it seems almost more fascinating 30 years later that there's no way like how would Richard or um, how would, how would any of these characters know that neoliberalism is about to go into hyperdrive? And like, there's like this like ambient doom that you can see like just around the corner, whereas everybody is still sort of living these like pre-neoliberal lives or like just at the very beginning of neoliberalism. So there's like this tension there that I really yes. like mm-hmm. Um yeah, let me see. There's like, there's a few lines I wrote down here that really stuck out to me, or like a few vignettes. One of them is sort of that scene where one of the characters runs into like an old acquaintance. And she asks him, you know, what, or he asks her, what have you been up to? And she's like, I was in Dallas, just like hanging out and resting. And Uh what have you been up to? And he's like, oh, you know, just like lollygogging around, lollygagging around, still unemployed. I'm in this band called The Ultimate Losers. And (laughs) like, I just love the name. It's like so 90s. And it's like this whole era of like, you know, the Bart Simpson underachiever and proud of it. Like to cap that scene off, the the two characters talk for a bit and then the, the young woman's like, Anyways, best of luck to you and your band, Beautiful Loser. <laughs> and the guy's like, oh, it's, it's ultimate loser, actually. But like, I kind of love that. Like, Beautiful Loser. Because what, what does loser mean? It means like different things to different people. But I guess like to me, that 90s idea of the loser is like someone who just sort of rejects all societal expectation bullshit and just drops out. And it doesn't mean like that they're not contributing to society in some way. Yes. Like in this case, through like music. Or whatever, but like they've opted out of the rat race.
2: You are bringing up so many, so many things for me, uh, Robbie. I, I think we should talk about the sort of advent of this generation of slackers or this population of slackers. Um, Important to note, I think, before we get into that, is that the movie was filmed in 1989. It was released sort of locally on a smaller scale in 1990 and then had its sort of, you know, American audience mainstream debut in the summer of 1991. So it's being filmed right around the time of the end of history. And right before, as you say, this sort of neoliberal promise comes to fruition, we've talked about on this show before previously with movies like Wayne's World and Pump Up the Volume and a couple of other films where this sort of emergence of a population that culturally was very anti-establishment and structurally and materially to a certain extent as well but should note that by and large, this was a population that was rebellious uh, by choice and that they had the means to be largely a population of white people. But when I think about this, this emergence of this slacker culture um, in the early 90s, there's something really real that these people are responding to, right? This wasn't just like people just woke up one day and decided like, oh, I don't want to work. Like, fuck that. There is a very real sort of uh, oppressive hegemony that comes with this kind of like prevailing culture of merit and morals. And I think a lot of people had, for lack of a better phrase, like acid reflux to that, right? There's something that's really alienating and... um and flattening about that. And so you see in the late 80s, and in the early 90s, particularly after the end of history, that this slacker population emerges not just to say, fuck you to the man, right? But it's saying fuck you for a reason. It's saying like, this sort of like narrow view of, of prosperity and achievement, like doesn't fit for the most people possible. Uh, And I don't wanna take part in that. There's something to benefit from on the part of sort of mainstream society and culture to, to paint a loser as someone who doesn't contribute anything. But you ask a really great question, which is like, well, who's making that decision anyway? And what is it that should be contributed and what's considered valuable, what's considered capital?
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's sort of like the the myth of meritocracy is foundational to capitalism, and it's needs to be resold in like different eras, probably to like you know the population in order for us to you know believe this myth and perpetuate the system and and be cogs in, in the system. And I think that. What's really interesting about this era of the '90s, and you mentioned the end of history, you know, like Francis Fukuyama's like whole thesis on we've reached the like the apex of society, like liberal democracy and you know free market capitalism, lightly regulated, is the ideal. And there's a sense that like we should all be super happy about that, right? And except there's a huge chunk. Missing, And I think in the 90s, it was like, you know, post Reagan, post sort of the end of the, the quote, welfare state era or whatever, like people were beginning to experience that shift, but it's so sort of early on that there was, well, there was definitely no like political outlet, right? Like the left didn't really exist, especially in the same way that it does now. So there was no... DSA to plug into right there was no like you know anything like that so I think that a lot of these uh, these people feeling alienated unplugged in the way that they could and they they've channeled their alienation through yeah exit exiting the society rejecting the cultural social components of it um, as much as possible and also you know this guy's like, I'm, I'm unemployed. Like, you know, I don't know. We don't know why he was unemployed, but obviously he doesn't seem to give a shit that much. Like he's still, you know, kicking it and, and hanging out with people and having a yep. decent time. Um, So there's that. And there's also like this line that I really love. That's, um, I think it, it, it's like near the end of the, the film. And um, this guy is like, walking around and he picks this card out someone just offers him a card it's like mm-hmm. one of the vignettes from a from a deck card. of
1: uh oblique strategies the the brian eno and peter schmidt okay. uh, creation from the 70s awesome <laughs> that's cool yeah
3: i didn't know that but yeah so this this card reads uh withdrawing in disgust is not the same as apathy mm-hmm and that really stuck out to me too it's like so randomly peppered into the film that you might miss it but it's such an important line and adds like a whole dimension to this idea of again like the slacker it's like or the loser or whatever it's it's not that they don't necessarily care or that these people are like you know just blobs you know that don't don't care about anything and we just want to exit society like that's a component of it for sure but it's like it's all framed within this larger political resistance that doesn't have an outlet yet. And it's just manifesting in the ways that make sense in that era. And it's just, there's also such a sweetness to it too. Cause it's, mm. it's so like these people don't know what they like, what's coming, you know, what's like right around the corner yes. is like hell, like literal hell. And yes. like, terms of you know how capitalism progresses and or i guess you could say decays and mm-hmm.
5: Mm-hmm.
3: like yeah i don't know it, it just seems like there's this like sweet naiveness where it's like oh no <laughs> you don't know yeah. what's
1: oh right no <laughs> you
2: poor unfortunate soul
1: that's totally true like they they have no idea at this point but there is something that they're tapping into that is like so just there i, I actually looked this up because i was so curious i went through a, a period of time in my life where i uh, was incredibly obsessed with Brian Eno and everything he had ever done, learned everything about him and learned about oblique strategies. I'm still a little obsessed with Brian Eno. It doesn't go away. He's, he's a, a brilliant, brilliant man. But uh, I, I was at a point in my life, almost ready to drop a considerable sum of money on a, a deck of these cards. And so I like looked it up and I was like, I really need to know if this is one of the cards because that phrase withdrawing and disgust, is not the same thing as apathy is like the perfect thesis for the film. turns out it is not one of the original cards in the deck. Um, So, so it, so it is a creation and a manifestation of a link later and like, and, and the, the crew here. But I I think that it works so perfectly and it sounds a lot like what would read on one of these cards. Um, But it's, it's perfect. And and one of the other scenes that I think exemplifies this so well is, a character who, in the credits, is is labeled a uh, Dostoevsky wannabe. Yes, <laughs> the one that's in the coffee house who is yeah. uh, theorizing what it would be to be a, a non creator, right? And uh, almost like, uh, what does he say? Um, Pat, like he down. says something like uh, it, the intensity of of non-expertise or something like that. Like the
2: obsessiveness of the utterly passive. Right. And in this passivity, I shall find freedom. Yes.
1: Mm. And so there there is. There's just this sort of like this entire generation of people who are seeing this thing that they are told they must buy into, um, that they are are seeing the artifice of or seeing as as even if they don't see yet the the lie in the promise, they're seeing it as something they don't want to do. Right. It it feels lame. It feels antithetical to their spirit and seems like this soul crushing kind of thing and yeah i just I, I love those peppered throughout and and they're you know like you said it's it's not a particularly political movie but i do like the that's like brief conversations there's the great one in in like the co-op with the character who's talking about the the lie of uh hw's mandate mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and talking about sort of like the falsehood of electoral politics and and him coming to the realization that like uh, you know, Hitler probably got more votes than George H.W. Bush did, you know, in terms Pinochet. of uh, Pinochet. Right. And, and you know, like likening him to all of these sort of like uh, authoritarian, uh, awful, you know, kind of leaders. Um, so, so I, yeah, there's, I mean, there's so many of these fun little bits. And I think what you're saying is, is the central thesis of the film, you know, like, like this, the withdrawing and disgust versus apathy. And it's so easy, I think, for this generation and this this culture of slackers uh, to be vilified, and especially you know in, in in the 90s, I think that there was in fact like Newsweek article after Newsweek article about this this Gen X and the slacker culture and how they just they're ungrateful and they're whiny.
3: Mm. Yeah, uh, sounds familiar, right? Yeah, yeah it definitely. It totally Every, generation Every generation falls in line
1: behind it, right? Mm-hmm. And and it it was uh, not surprising, but certainly. Uh, uh, comical, coming to that and, and realizing like, oh yeah, this is just a thing that every generation does uh, when they're eventually forced to buy in to, mm. uh, to the false neoliberal promise. Yep. Right.
4: Okay, I'm Dusty Esti, you're Anna, writing The Gambler, Take hey, my dictation. Who's ever written the great work about the immense effort required in order not to create? Intensity without mastery the obsessiveness of the utterly passive. And could it be that in this passivity, I shall find my freedom? Well, I'm heading over there. Hey man, what are you doing? You're supposed to be getting this down. It's pretty good there.
2: I want to pause here for a second, Robbie, because I think what you're saying is is brilliant. Um, and I'm really glad you pointed out this particular quote, because there are four lines in the movie in particular that sort of have this same ilk and we've talked about two of them already and it's relating to this idea of productivity what you're talking about and i think actually in in these uh in these statements what you find is a reframing of like what productivity is like what positive input and contribution looks like and in that regard i find the sort of apoliticism of the movie and of the sentiments of these characters to actually be intensely political um that that in in reframing this idea of what prosperity what success what doing something meaningful looks like um they're actually uh, making a political statement. And the two other statements, uh, the two other lines that came up that are related to this first one that you mentioned, um, one comes from the old anarchist when he says he's departing from his, uh, encounter with the young man who tried to rob him. Um, he, who he, uh, pacifies quite quickly and then they go for a walk, which I just love. Um, he says, uh, passion for destruction is also a creative passion so that's one and then the other the other phrase that comes up later in the movie um every action is positive even if it has a negative reaction uh and then this withdrawing and disgust one that you mentioned and of course the passivity is freedom all of these lines are reframing this idea of like what capital is like what Contribution is, and that's where you find the politics of the film, um, and that's that's what I think makes this film beautifully subversive. Is that it? It makes these really important political uh, and even functional statements about uh, about society and the structures of of how we're organized, uh, but does so in a way that um, that makes you think that it's actually not doing that.
1: Mm and in this way too I you know I think that we haven't talked much about like the the formalism of of the filmmaking itself but linklater i think is is doing something here that is uh, incredibly singular in terms of like independent cinema especially american independent cinema um you know he he's kind of lauded with with being sort of the the vanguard of this young generation of early 90s filmmakers B- behind him you know uh, people like Kevin Smith and and Clerks being a byproduct of of this. Um, sorry to our friends that we need to talk about Kevin um, Linklater's to blame, but <laughs> um, you know. Also, I I think of you know like a, a Robert Rodriguez who who made you know El Mariachi and stuff in the early uh, early nineties here, and a lot of these just kind of like up and coming young filmmakers. Um, but but Linklater is one one of the few that's doing this on like a legitimately shoestring budget of $23,000 that he like borrowed from friends and family um, just on, on a whim, hoping that hoping that this thing would find a a purchase and find an audience. Um, And also just like in the narrative structure, right? So many of these other films maintain this formal element of classic, like three act Hollywood narrative, even if they are more driven by vignette, even if they are, Trying to tap into this sort of like feeling of aimlessness and and uh, you know, th- this one is the only one that feels politicized in in both its its narrative qualities and and its formalism where it's it's mm. refusing to buy into and play on that that standard field of like a three act structure, giving you a protagonist. Um, and and really doesn't permit you to talk about this film. In any sort of like classic, mm-hmm. uh, critical way, you, you, you kind of have to approach it from a, a larger, broader, more thematic, more political, more cultural kind of uh,
3: evaluation. Totally. Yeah. I think that's such a great analysis. Like you articulated something that was definitely going on for me when I was watching this. It's, it's and, and to like to go back to sort of what you were saying, Carly, um, the way that politics emerges is in, in this film is very subtle. And it's sort of, like, these days, like, the left is so explicit. Like, we talk about, like, <laughs> policy, and we talk about a Green New Deal, and Medicare for All, and, like, all of this kind of stuff. And it's interesting, because one thing that we don't do as much, we don't talk about how, the like, if we were to, like, you know, gain power, if the left were to emerge triumphant, like, yeah, we'd have, like, you know, great economic policies and stuff, but, like, ultimately, that would mean that, like, life would be a little bit more fun and like Mm -hmm. we would, and we don't use this language enough because it's Mm, been co opted by the right, but like we would have like a lot more freedom, you know? And there's like this sense of boredom that permeates the film. You know, it's like a hot, you just like feel it. It's like a hot day in Austin. Like people are just like fighting against boredom, but there's this sort of like radical freedom that comes with boredom. Right. Yeah, there, there's this also, there, there, there's a scene where this guy's like an older guy, like not old, but like maybe in his 40s or something. And he's like, but he's like older than most of the characters. He's walking around from person to person, bumming cigarettes. Right. He's like mm-hmm. right. being asked questions by these two characters that are shooting some kind of movie and or documentary or whatever. And they're asking him if he voted in the most recent election. So this is like, I believe, during the like Democratic primary um and uh he's like hell no i've got less important things to do
2: yes i wrote that line <laughs> yeah, down that too
5: and,
3: <laughs> and i just love that and then like they ask him what kind of work he does and he says hell to the kind of or they, they ask what he does for a living and he says to hell with the kind of work you have to do to make a living yep uh, yes. all it does is fill the bellies of the pigs who exploit us mm-hmm. look at me i'm making it i may live badly but at least I don't have to work to do it. And like, and then he sort of just like walks off into the sunset or whatever, literally. But like, (laughs) it's like, it's it's like, where can you get that sort of explicit analysis in the 90s, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I feel like that era, like, I don't know if we could call this like popular media, but like in most media, it would be difficult to get that kind of analysis. And the way that it's, it's like this sort of quirky character who's like just sort of, spitting this stuff out on a whim. It's not like explicitly sending a message to the viewer, like beating you over the head with something, but it's its sort of like the kind of thing where you're like, and I would imagine, you know, back then, if I were watching this as a younger kid, I'd be like, huh, like it would just be like a little seed planted.
1: You're reminding me too of of another moment that, uh, you know, Carly and I both were like, we we should write that down. Um, That, that same scene with the, uh, with the guy who, uh, has like the wall of TVs and is, is creating these loops of like devastation and, and, you know, nuclear bombs going off and violence has this tape from a like young radicalized white man. Um, and I'm, and I was just thinking about it in proximity to like, you know, the manifestos of a lot of like right-wing domestic terrorism that happens today where the things that he's espousing actually have a lot more proximity to like Marxism and to a lot of uh, you know, more, more left-wing kind of ideologies probably because of the era and, and because of, you know, uh, who our enemies were at the time. But he, he says that line where he says, um, every commodity you produce is a piece of your own death Mm, or something mm, like mm. that. Um, and I was just like, this is, yeah, like, like you said, where, where can you find stuff like this, you know? And, and for them just to throw that little nugget into like what is ostensibly supposed to be just kind of like the ramblings of a, a radicalized, like unwell boy before he, you know, fires a gun at the camera or at, or at people, uh, yeah, there's there's something fascinating about it. Like you said, it it never lingers enough to to try to force you to say that the film is about these things, mm-hmm. but it does plant the seed enough to make you consider
0: them. Yeah. And
2: it also shows us that these people on the margins of society, whether by choice or sort of out of material necessity, which we can get into later. Um, these people are actually the ones that know what's going on, right? Like, I think the, the man that you referenced who said, um, I may live badly, but at least I don't have to work to do it. There's a small detail in an exchange with a character that he has, um, when he goes into like a video game shop or something. And the man that he speaks to says, Oh, you got, when did you get out? And he said, Oh, like just now whatever, whatever. We're meant to believe, I think, that this person just got out of prison Um, and he tells the other guys that he was with who he bummed a ride from that he was going to a funeral. But uh, we later find out that that's likely not the case. And I think it's interesting that this movie, um, to your earlier point, Robbie, uh, showcases these people with a lot of empathy, Um, and you know, it's sort of presenting us with the veneer that this is all like gobbledygook and these people are just sort of like, uh, you know, apathetic losers, but (laughs) that's like the surface level read. When you actually look into the ways in which Linklater is handling these characters and the, the details he's giving us about them, he's really telling us that these people who are for one reason or another, not subscribing to the mainstream trajectory of what, uh, you know, neoliberalism is promising, that these people are actually the ones that um, really see the forest through the trees and can accurately diagnose the problems of modern society.
3: Yeah. Um, I was thinking a little bit along the lines of, like, these like unsuspecting character, characters having pearls of wisdom. Mm-hmm. Um, so Pavement came on, um, in the store the other day and it was, uh, I forget the name of the song, but it's like just a bunch of sort of like, you know, mm-hmm. lyrics that don't have any like explicitly political meaning or whatever. But then there's this line that's like, um, you got to pay your dues before you pay the rent. And mm-hmm. I don't know why, but like, I mean, I kind of guess I, I do know why it's sort of along this vein of these like unsuspecting like this song it's like unsuspecting you're not expecting anything like political explicitly but then all of a sudden there's this like very 90s political moment where it's like this line is actually pretty rich with like a lot to unpack but it's just thrown in there really randomly alongside like other very lyrical like you know lines that don't have any kind of like necessarily explicitly political or even subtly political explanation and it's yeah it sort of like reminds me of this film in a lot of ways just in terms of how it's just so yeah it's it's so 90s and, and so sort of different from I don't know like when I think about how politics and art coincide now it's sort of like there are a few example there are a few exceptions but for the most part I feel like explicit like art that's like explicitly political sort of I just have sort of uh a little bit of an aversion to often because i think that it's not yes. done it, it's not always done well but it's like i love the way that it, it comes out in films like this and slacker and also in like you know certain um certain songs that resonate with me still from that era uh, and i, I don't want to like completely disparage any kind of like political art from you know our modern current era now but it's it was sort of uh I don't know. Does that does that sort of resonate at all? Does that make sense? Absolutely, one
2: thousand percent. I
1: will disparage everyone. Don't make political art anymore, <laughs> everyone listening. Just don't. No, I'm kidding. No, but <laughs> you, well, I think what you're saying uh, there there is a read on that, right? Like masking, uh, you know, the the sentiment or or tapping more into something about uh, the the more subjective nature of that politicism is something that oftentimes feels more profound when it comes to making art. I feel like there's so much mainstream art we'll call it in quotes that uh very topically checks off boxes you know and and a lot of the big studios do this right and most of that is done on like a a purely cultural plane of of inclusivity uh you know like like marvel wants to make sure to add its first gay character its first black Mm -hmm. female character it's you know all of these things and make that the thing that says the politics are sound despite the fact that the movie is right. financed by and defending like the military industrial complex, totally. uh, yes. but, but like one of my favorite films of probably the last 10 years. And I think maybe one of the best like overtly political films that isn't really all that political is um, Paul Schrader's first reformed with, Ugh, with yes. Ethan Hawke um, who's a, a link later uh, stalwart as well. So, uh, you know he's he's certainly dialed in on on these fronts,
3: um, mm-hmm. but but a movie I haven't seen that, but I'll, I'll definitely check
1: it out. Highly it's recommend. Fantastic. And so I mean it's it's ultimately just about like a, a pastor who's having a crisis of faith that is uh, brought on by speaking to uh, a member of his church who is undergoing like a profound existential climate anxiety and dread. Uh, to the point where he ends up taking his own life, um, and so the more he begins, uh, the pastor Ethan Hawk begins to examine this. Uh, the more he starts to realize that same level of of existential reality and 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 fear and anxiety about uh, the ways in which his his faith uh, is either antithetical to pres- the preservation of the planet or the ways in which the answers that faith provides are insubstantial to answering the crisis of like. A doomed existence. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's fascinating. I don't want to say any more than that. If you haven't seen it, uh, you know, go, go go and see it immediately. It's it's a fantastic movie. But I think what you're saying is is one of the things that I felt was so profound about it, which is this is a very subjective, this is a very personal film that has so much going on and a great performance at the center of it, and all of these sort of like interesting ideas floating around. But what it crystallizes is is the feeling, right? And it, and it mm-hmm. crystallizes the, the emotion and the subjective nature of what ultimately breeds political action rather than making the film itself the political act. Yeah, yeah exactly,
4: exactly. You know about the uh, suppressed transmission, of course. Mm-mm. No? Ah, well, this is the uh, 20th anniversary of the moonwalk, you know, and way back there when they giving us that one giant step for mankind bit, another astronaut's in the background yelling his fool head off saying, oh my God, what's that over in the crater? Well, NASA cuts him off just like that. Oh, it all begins to leak out then, that the space program is just one giant big cover-up. You know, it's a covert operation between the United States government and the Soviet Union. We've been on the moon since the 50s. <laughs> you wanna know how we got there, right? I tell you, anti-gravity technology, we stole it from the Nazis after the end of World War II. It's perfectly obvious. Anyway, it's a sci-fi movie called Alternative Free. And uh, it's about the- <laughs> kidnapping people using a little psycho surgery on them, you know, and uh, turn them into zombies and making them colonize the moon and Mars. Funny, huh? Except it's absolutely true. All of it. We've been on Mars since 62. The reason we're up there covertly is because of the greenhouse effect. It all ties in. Yeah, greenhouse effect, you know. By the way, they discovered that in the 40s. You can ask yourself what they've been doing, sitting on their ass for 49 years, huh? But everybody says, oh, greenhouse effect 100 years from now. Uh, I'll be long dead going out of here. Not so, my friend. Not so. Now, Government's setting on the fact that it's 10 to 20 years maximum. <laughs> it's getting hotter, don't you think?
2: Robbie, you sent us an article when we were talking about um, doing this movie for, for uh, the show and it is called The Age of the Influencer Has Peaked. It's Time for the Rise of the Slacker again. And it's by Rosie Spinks, as you said. Um, and There's a lot in there, um, but one thing I just wanted to ask you is sort of what your take is, what your read is on this oscillation between... A striver mentality and a finger quotes slacker mentality, right? and we've been sort of dancing around this in a bunch of different ways uh, in talking about like what does a slacker actually really contribute to society, and even the naming of a person as a slacker from you know mainstream media is something that fails to acknowledge that these people are a direct result of the project of neoliberalism, right? Um, mm-hmm. But I would love to get your take on on sort of your your read on the neoliberal self right where work is life
3: so i have I've so many thoughts on this and so you know lay
2: them on uh, us yeah.
3: <laughs> um so okay i'm gonna I'll just read a couple of quotes from the article that i really think sort of describe um this in a nutshell it's like this is a quote within the article a quote from somebody else not uh rosie spanks um lauren scott author of picnic comma lightning in search of a new reality or yeah, I think that's the name of, of the book. But anyways, yep. the quote is, neoliberalism has hollowed out so many ways of making a stable income that it's not surprising that the influencer economy has risen up in this really precarious economic climate for millennials. And so, yeah, I, I think what I, I want to pull from that is it just, it seems like it was so much easier And it doesn't just seem like it's like factual that I think from certain privileged parts of the society, I suppose, not everybody, but um, it was generally easier to make a living before like the 2000s and maybe even the 90s, like living costs were a lot lower. Wages were much more in line with cost of living and productivity. And like, I don't know, you see you see all these shows, like, I don't know, Friends, for example, where it's like, they're living in New York, like these people are living in New York, and you don't really ever see them at work. They're just mm-hmm. like, you know, it, it just wasn't a part of the conversation, because it wasn't such a huge aspect of life. It was like, how do you make a like, how do you eke out a meager living within our current economic system? Like, it right. just wasn't as present of a question. And I think as that sort of shifted, um, a lot of things happened, including, you know, it became more and more difficult to be a slacker and like your quality of life as a sort of someone who just worked as little as possible in like maybe you know, 70s and 80s and even the 90s was a lot higher than it would be now if you were not putting as much effort into making quote a living, uh, making money. And so I think one of the things that emerged is, and especially it's like in hyperdrive now, it's like this hustle culture, right? It's like the Mm -hmm. neoliberal response to hyper exploitation of workers in the last several decades, as well as like the increasing difficulty, like I said, of being able to provide for your basic needs. And so we're all... Um, through all of these different mediums like through television through our parents through politics and political leaders and all sorts of different avenues we've been um, we've been taught that like the response to this difficulty making of of, of like living and making a living and surviving within the system is an individual response and it just means that we need to rise above the average and do as much as possible to ensure that we are able to you know not just maybe even like survive but in certain cases to really to really thrive and there's like a couple of examples of this um that i've come across recently diddy he had an instagram story recently where he was like hanging out on uh like the deck of his pool at his mansion it's like one of those pools that like doesn't seem like it has an end it just sort of like disappears and then like
2: infinity pools yeah
3: (laughs) yeah and and behind it is the ocean and like a sunset or something and he's just like totally chomping on this mango he's like really into this mango and he's talking he's saying like you know when i was like struggling And I I forget if he like said this or if it's in like the caption or whatever, but he was like, I woke up one day when I was a kid and there was like 15 cockroaches on my face. And I was like, I'm never going to like, I'm not going to grow up like this. I'm going to work. I'm going to hustle. I'm going to eat as many mangoes as possible and I'm going to get really rich. (laughs) And like he, he says, and I'm not special. Anyone can do this. And it's like, it's through things like that, just like subtle things from like, you know, influencers or whatever, where it's like this ultimate sort of like capitalist gaslighting where it's like, you're poor because you're not working hard enough and you could, you're just lazy. If you didn't, you would be able to like accomplish what, you know, all these other rich famous people are accomplishing. And there's this, this like YouTuber Gary V he's like, a pretty prominent mouthpiece for this like sort of hustle culture and he's like popularizing these ideas of like rise and grind he's like got millions and millions of views and he talks about like you should work literally 18 to 20 hours a day and um despite the fact that like it's definitely linked like working long hours is linked to like horrible health outcomes and Mm -hmm. you and like i don't know you all see these articles it's like how this 20 year old bought his own house by saving money, working hard and skipping the avocado toast or something. And it's like <laughs> yeah. always like halfway through those articles, like very deep down. It's like, incidentally, he also received like six figure loan for his parents. Yes. Right. But... Every
2: time. Oh, generational wealth. That's a fucking yeah. thing.
1: He had a grandparent die in the midst of working all of that time. <laughs> yeah. And,
3: yeah. Yeah. So it, it's just like a lie. Right. But like, we're all being fed this lie and, it sort of brings me to um, this other, very related to the article that that Rosie Spinks wrote. This book that I um, just finished, actually, and I'm really excited to in, in, uh, to interview the the author, uh, Devin Price, and it's called "Laziness Doesn't Exist." I'm actually interviewing them next week for Upstream, so keep keep your eyes open for that. Oh, yes. um, you heard it here
1: first, folks. <laughs>
3: Um, but so one of the, the reaffirmations that came to me while reading Devin's book was just, yeah, how pervasive, and we talked about this at the beginning a little bit, I'll, I'll loop back into it, the myth of meritocracy is in our society, mm-hmm. and that we actually think that success is tied to hard work. And it's an idea that has been foundational to, you know, American capitalism since its inception. And there's very specific parts of American culture that feed into that and in like um, early parts of our history and how we were founded and like the Protestant work ethic and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it's this myth of that, like, you can pull yourselves up from your bootstraps. Um, but, and I think one of the cool things about the the film too, to bring it back to Slacker is like, we see that like success is only tied to a very specific kind of hard work. And uh, I think there's a, a line in the film where it's like, this guy walks by in a suit and one of the characters is like, I don't, I'm just like paraphrasing here, but it's like, look at that dork, like he's suffering from oxygen deprivation. Yes. And, <laughs> yeah. And it's like, you know, that guy's like working, probably working pretty hard in finance or like business maybe or something. That's like sort of the impression that I got. And it's like, there are other ways of working hard, but it's sort of, you know, in our current iteration of capitalism it's like you got to work hard in these very specific ways in order to be successful if you work super hard as like i don't know a musician who's like really into making like noise music and you make like amazing stuff it's like you're working hard you're passionate you're doing all the right things but it's not pointing in the right direction because it's not going to bring you financial wealth or status I guess I'm just questioning this idea of, like, hyper-productivity and, like, Mm -hmm. what even productivity means. Because, yeah, I think we would all agree that, like, hyper-productivity is bad in a number of ways, health-wise, like, psychologically, like, in a whole number of ways. But also, it's, like, it's not even that we're not being hyper-productive. Like, you know, I not so much anymore, but like when I was in my twenties, I would spend hours and hours in my bedroom, just like making music that I would like, maybe just share with a handful of friends. And it's like working really, really hard at something I really, really loved. But like, I didn't make any kind of money off of it. And like, I didn't gain anything sort of like in the traditional capitalist sense of like success out of it. It's just something that I love to do. and. I was being hyperproductive, you know, but like just not in the right way.
1: You you bring up a, a couple of things here, and, and I want to talk about all of them. The first of which, you know, you you just made me recall, in fact, in this conversation about hyperproductivity and working hard and Striver culture, a moment that I didn't put too much emphasis on initially, but now is colored with a, a great level of import, and it's the uh, the two for one scene at the USA Today uh, mm-hmm. newspaper terminal where uh, a a gentleman already has paid for a newspaper and another one of the characters we've been tracking with and following lines up behind him to get a paper. The guy in front offers to steal him a paper, more or less, and says, hey, like, what about it? Like a two for one special. And the character we've been following, who's in line, refuses the handout. He refuses something like free in order to, like, put in his change and pay for the thing, and ultimately gets rejected. <laughs> like, you know, he has it this- It does not work out for it, him. It doesn't work out. He doesn't end up getting the paper because he like pays like he's supposed to and the machine <laughs> fails. And I, I, you yeah. know, I maybe there wasn't anything allegorically uh, <laughs> intended by that scene, but I think it's so funny, right? As like a, as a vestige of that culture, of that idea of like, yeah. I have money, I'm gonna pay for this thing mm. myself or, or, or I, I worked so that I can afford this thing. And refusing to receive the thing yeah, yeah, yeah. as just a byproduct of someone else's goodwill, generosity, this sort of like collectivist sense,
4: mm-hmm.
1: um, despite it being illegal. But a lot of things are illegal that are you know criminalized purely to uh, exploit and, and perpetuate the, the system mm-hmm. and, and and its confines. But it, he just he just refuses it, <laughs> and I think it's so funny now thinking about it, where it's like I'm going to do this myself. I'm going to pull myself up. I'm going to pay for this thing on my own. Mm-hmm. Uh, only to find that the machine itself is yes, uh, is not working. Yes. That it's corrupted. I'm gonna um, play by the
3: rules and still exactly choose. and
2: yep. and be surprised when I don't get the thing that I was promised. Yeah. Right.
1: Mm-hmm. One of the other things, um, that I wanted to talk about just briefly is you know you're you're kind of talking about this idea of productivity of creation for creation's sake, or or making art producing something that doesn't fall into the very narrow uh sort of hegemony of what would be deemed worthy of success or praise or monetization any of those things and we were kind of talking about this in in sort of like the ironic sense of slacker's legacy and its success that ultimately uh, our ability to see it is a byproduct of its marketability Mm. You know, despite the fact that it is very much this sort of like resonant counterculture statement, the only reason it really took off is because there was, you know, there there were a, a couple of future-minded folks at Orion Pictures who happened upon it, who spoke to some people and found out that it it resonated with enough people that they could uh, distribute it and and make some money off of the thing.
3: Mm. Yeah.
1: And so yeah, you know it's it it later on in in the decade we see uh, the commercialization of this this archetype, right? Like I think about reality bites being you know like a, a studio production that that Ben Stiller creates.
2: Wayne's World. Wayne's
1: World is one we talked about on the show and how it is like the ultimate example of commercializing the slacker archetype mm-hmm. um, for the sake of like selling products. Like there's even the bit in that where they are just doing shameless product promotion and wearing Reebok and eating Pizza Hut and drinking Pepsi and all of that but you know there 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 is something interesting to be i think discerned here from the idea that oh yeah this this person created a thing that is about this aimlessness about the desire for passivity or to to create something absent a system that tells us it's not worthy only to find purchase there only to find success there anyway because Mm -hmm. somebody was like this is speaking to the youth. There's you know? a market. There's a market. Literally, for yeah. there's yeah. a market. The yes. suits
2: sat around yes. a table and said, there is a market for this. Yeah,
1: it's one of, I mean, I don't want to call it this, but I think about like the phrase like monetizing the rot, right? You know, mm-hmm. the way that like people like, you know, try to find ways to produce markets for things that otherwise uh, are, are meaningless or, or normally just deemed free in our society.
3: What you're bringing up is something that... um I think about a lot. I'm really, I hadn't actually thought about it in this specific context. So I'm really glad you brought it up. And it's like this whole idea of how capitalism is so great at co-opting its own Yes. Opposition, mm-hmm. Right? Like, it's <laughs> so good at that. And this is a perfect example where it's like, you know, that whole, like, that whole culture has been completely commodified. Right? Like, um, I don't know. I'm thinking about, like, hot topic and that, that store i don't know if it even still exists i think it does but like um you know selling exactly what you need to wear in order to be like alternative and uh just like in all sorts of ways and yeah this film you know i don't think it's like there's anything nefarious going on necessarily but yeah it absolutely is like you said a bunch of suits and around the table and we're like, this is, yeah, we can literally make money off of this. So let's throw it out there. And like, who cares how subversive it is because it's not like these people have any like long-term ideological uh, tie to like, you know, anything at all, (laughs) maybe, except for making money. Right. So it's Mm -hmm. like, if it makes them money in the short term, like, yeah, let's throw out some subversive messages. It's not like, Anybody's going to actually act on it or do anything or threaten us? Precisely. We're just going to make enough money, and even if they do, with the money that that we make will just like, you know, I don't know, like invest in a politician or a bunker, and like we'll <laughs> yeah. be fine.
2: Well, and it also stands to reason that those people, those suits sitting around a table wouldn't see these ideas as anything other than cultural markers, right? As anything other than like a patch you put on your jeans. They don't think of these ideas as being materially, Mm. functionally tied to anything because they don't see the world that way, right? That's Mm. not, that's not how they see everything as culture, right? right? Even when, even when it's not. and. You're also making me realize, Robbie, that like this myth of the meritocracy and we've come back to this a lot uh, on our show because the movies of the 90s sing us these stories left and right. And that's why we talk about them. Um, But that the myth of meritocracy is one that is insistent on this idea of individual effort so that it can ignore structural realities so that it can deny the the functional necessities and the functional fallout of the system and I always think about and we've talked about it on the show actually with Della um, Thatcher's Tina statement there is no alternative or there is no society right it's this like total just mind mind smoothing uh, like wash of no, like, it's just you. There is nothing acting on you or informing your experience or situating you in a certain um, circumstance. You just have to be like Diddy and work really hard so that you can eat a lot of mangoes. And <laughs> never mind how Diddy got all those roaches on his face, right? right. That's that's not something we're going to talk about either. Um, and, and that's also tied to this other question you're making me think of, which is like, what is freedom? And the article you mentioned uh, uh, by Rosie Spinks sort of asked the same question, which is like under the umbrella of neoliberalism, under the idea of the free market being the only thing that defines freedom, um, we, we find our liberation in consumerist practices. Mm -hmm. We find our liberation in individual acts of self. There's a line in You've Got Mail when Tom Hanks' character, who's this like corporate takeover book chain asshole, is like talking about Starbucks. And he's, you know, laughing at the fact that when people order this like highly elaborate coffee drink that it's some like sense of themselves that they're reminding Mm -hmm. themselves still exists. And it's like a throwaway laugh line, but there's something very real that he's talking about there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so what I love that you're, you're uh, bringing up and what I think this movie is also positing is that freedom isn't like this thing we're told that it is. It is the, the this, this striver culture is actually insanely oppressive, evidenced by the fact that we have these people telling us that like, you've got to work 20 hours a day if you want to be free, yeah. uh, which is like a complete paradox. And instead, Slacker is, is turning that, that, uh, that term of derision, Slacker, and is actually saying like, this is freedom the freedom to think and uh, have time right, and free will, the decision to not work or to focus on your art, as you're saying, that that is freedom. And the thing we're told is freedom is actually what's shackling us.
3: Yeah, now there's so much rich stuff to like talk about in what you just said. Um, um, It's sort of this idea of like, the personal is the political. Which it's an idea that like, I think was the, the phrase comes from the feminist movement in the 60s, talking about how things that happen to us as individuals are not isolated events, but sort of part of larger systemic causes and effects. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it was focused on like um, you know, feminism and, and feminist issues, somewhat isolated from economic issues. Uh, mainstream feminism in the 60s wasn't very intersectional, but um it's definitely true of our economic system, right? And poverty is often seen as like a, a personal flaw. And yes. people like the YouTuber, for example, or like Diddy or whatever, are doing really hard work to convince us that, uh, you know, any lack of success is a personal failure. Yep. And this is something that we, Della and I, in our very first documentary um, exploring, quote, you know, square quote, co- scare quote, sharing economy, um, <laughs> really explored because this was very early on in sort of our like, I should just speak for myself here, but like my sort of political awakening, I guess, like I've, you know, if somebody to ask were to ask me like what radicalized me, I would go way back and say like, you know, punk rock and Noam Chomsky, but it was like a very, <laughs> it was a very superficial sort of radicalization. It was like an anti this, and it wasn't so much a like, this is like my ideas of what could be instead. And it was like very much framed like that, but it wasn't until... Uh, We sort of produced this, our first documentary, The Sharing Economy, where we did a ride along with this guy, um, a a Lyft driver, and uh, like describing his personal life in all these ways, like his wishes and his desires and his feelings of failure and all this other stuff in such an individual way. And at the same time, we were doing like interviews with him we were also speaking to like academics and experts like Doug Henwood or Keeley McBride who are in that episode who have this very broad view of things. And it was like coming to the realization that like his, this, this Lyft driver's um, inability to be as successful as he would like in our society is tied to the systems. It's like a very, very systemic. And I, I had other friends too that were struggling at the time and who have been struggling to like, You know be quote successful and they all seem to have this similar sort of like mentality it's not not explicitly but like i need to do this i need to do that to get it and it's like there's just a lack of like no we need to come together and come together and like challenge the systems even though that might take longer and it's much more like difficult to imagine that happening it is a nice like idea to think that you can just work harder and succeed but like this idea of like collective response to collective systemic issues is something that I think we've really lost. And I think that, uh, I, I think it is emerging in the left quite a bit now that we're starting to talk about this stuff more, uh, but I think definitely like you know, the more popular imagination and, and more mainstream conversations, like it still is all about like self-help and um, you know that kind of like individual stuff and i know uh I'll, I'll pause in just a sec but just to touch the last thing that you uh brought up carly about freedom um just to add to that like i don't i don't think there's much to add because you did a, you know, a fantastic job of like summarizing this whole idea of freedom different types of freedom i think that we focus a lot on like i'm like traditionally americans do focus a lot on freedom from right like freedom from mm. repressive government freedom um all right Actually, you might want to edit that because I said it the wrong way. Freedom to. (laughs) We focus on freedom to. Like freedom to like have private property or freedom to do anything that we really want to. Like to have guns and to have this and that and to like freedom to do a bunch of stuff. And we don't talk about freedom from things. Like we don't talk about freedom from... The tyranny of economics in the market we don't talk about like freedom from poverty and that kind of thing and i think in one in the latter in freedom from is when we're really talking about liberation as opposed to sort of this like adolescent sense of like i want to be able to do whatever i want kind of freedom and i think there's like important parts of both but I, i just think that it's so imbalanced in our current conversations around freedom and that it would, I think, be really helpful in a lot of ways if we started focusing on, started taking back the word freedom and sort of reframing it as a more so freedom from all of these things that are subtly and implicitly put put on us without our, us really realizing it.
2: Beautifully put. Yeah, the this idea of freedom um, and sort of how we define it is something that um, I've been butting up against a lot in a bunch of different places. Um, I heard, uh, David Harvey on, uh, a podcast. Um, I don't think it was his podcast, which is like all about anti-capitalist theory, but on a podcast, just ask the very simple question, like, you know, well, what is freedom? Well, it's really contained in the word itself. It's, it's free will. Right. And like, we don't, It's we've there's there's so much acrobatics in the philosophies of, uh, you know, justifying a system that is quite plainly depriving you of the very thing that you're you're after, that we can't even see that the answer is contained in the word itself. Um, But I like this build that you're adding of of this distinction between freedom to and freedom from.
3: Yeah, yeah. I'm looking up a meme I posted recently that I think.
2: <laughs> oh, fantastic! I'm,
3: I'm literally yeah. I communicate through memes quite often. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know that account existential comics. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Um, you've got to hand it to capitalism, convincing everyone that freedom meant obeying your boss or starving was pretty. That was a pretty incredible achievement. <laughs> mm-hmm. and
2: I saw upstream post that and I was like yup yep, yeah I, I that think that's kind <laughs> of
3: like yeah that's, that's sort of an example of what we're talking about for sure you know there's something very wrong with that
0: what? Did I gave the guy your coke? the quarter?
1: both of them both of them it's bad for both of him because it's not really going to help him and you because that relationship is naturally going to involve that okay. condescending element Maybe even contempt. Granted,
0: giving the man a quarter isn't gonna change his life around. I do realize that. There are better ways to help. I've been I've been looking into these groups. That's what I'm talking about.
1: That's exactly what I'm talking about. See, we're conditioned to assume that suffering is bad. It's not. See, when you pity someone, all you're able to see is this base creature in them. You can't see any true potential.
0: I think it's the potential you know, I do see. You know, but it's like all these other futile causes that you fall into they all stem from a certain weakness.
1: You know, psychologically, helping everyone else out is easier. It's an escape from working on yourself, from perfecting yourself. Yeah,
5: Mr. Perfect here.
0: You know, that's what I hate. When you start talking like this, it's like you're just pulling these things from the shit you read. and you haven't thought it out for yourself. No bearing on the world around us. And totally unoriginal. Right. It's like you're just pasted together these bits and pieces from your authoritative sources. I don't know. I'm beginning to suspect maybe there's nothing really in there. Suspect.
5: You're beginning to suspect. Oh, that's rich.
1: That's really rich. Um, one of the, the other things that you know is kind of tied into all of this that I was, I was thinking about when you were talking, Robbie, is the idea of the, the specific sort of temporal place that Slacker exists in 1991. And really, as, as we were mentioning, the, the, the privilege of aimlessness, mm-hmm. right? the the opportunity to have that and and um, I think that the the Sphinx article goes into it a little bit too you know that that our generation that millennials especially now in in sort of our, our 2021 existence have lost not the aptitude but the opportunity to even exist in that periphery and exist uh, you know in a place oppositional to to our sort of cultural hegemony um, because of this neoliberal slide into a place where as as that comic points out right we have to obey the bosses or we where we starve
2: yeah there's a material mandate now Mm
1: -hmm. right exactly and you know I, i was just considering the the 90s here as a place that you know is is very fixed in time as as sort of an era at the beginning of the end of history and also you know in in the midst of that that inciting that in that inflection point of neoliberalism that permitted people to tap out right to to kind of say, "I'm not going to do this you know the 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 sort of great tragedy of all of it that we are so rarely granted that option anymore at all mm. that that the the success of neoliberalism and the success of this society and its its production of precarity uh no longer really permits any of us, if, if, you know, at all to, to exist in that space, that, that we are, we're constantly in fear of losing the things that, that necess- that we need to survive.
3: Yeah. We're, we're imprisoned in productivity, right? There's like no yes. way out. And it's a really, it's an actually a very interesting dynamic intention that you bring up that I've been talking to um, and debating with a, a few people just very recently in my life. Um, this idea of, of opting out of the system it has become much more difficult it, it is still somewhat possible like i know there are a lot of people who dream of and some that are actually like moving out of urban centers moving onto like land or like i have a cousin who's like um he lives in Scotland and the squatting laws there are incredibly relaxed and he and a bunch of his friends built a community on a ridge that's like owned by someone but like this person has no recourse to like take it back it's kind of so technical stuff and um he just lives there on his own or within a community on their own and they like dumpster dive and they do all this stuff and it's like yes also you know that the world is getting worse around you and the tentacles of american capitalism or in this case whatever scottish capital or whatever are going to <laughs> global capitalism which say, are going to end up finding you like you've found te- temporary respite from it and that's awesome and i want to visit you because that sounds great <laughs> but like also it's it's sort of this idea that like you really can't at this point extricate mm-hmm. yourself from the system and i think we're all stuck in this place where we have to make this decision where it's like how do you make a living and also sort of Fight these fights and build solidarity and do what you need to do to ensure not just that, like, you as a skilled, young, capable person, white, coming from like a relatively affluent background, educated, are able to build your own life for yourself, but how do we ensure that everybody in society is able to have that privilege, to have some like modicum of freedom? and some escape from the hegemony the hegemony, and, and the tyranny and the repression that we're all facing that's something i struggle with all the time too and it, it's like it's kind of difficult right now in our current era to to really imagine in our lifetimes even necessarily as i guess it's, you can imagine it but to like actually think that like we're going to build collective we're going to achieve li- collective liberation seems sort of far-fetched now because we're just right in the middle of like one of the darkest periods ever but i always come back to this idea um of like radical optimism which is Mm -hmm. uh it's i first heard it through chris hedges it's this idea that like do i actually think that we are going to achieve the goals that i'm fighting for That's not as interesting as a question, right? It's like the more, I think, salient point. And he puts it in a really beautiful way. He's like, why do I fight fascists? Do I fight fascists because I think I'm going to win? No. I fight fascists because they're fucking fascists. (laughs) (laughs) That's sort of like the the sort of the only, I think the only way for me to sort of like uh, move forward in being sort of like, Not just politically aware, but active is is to divorce the outcome from the process, and Mm -hmm. it's like this is just kind of what you have to do right now in this incredibly dark era. I I don't think it's the best way forward. Is to like try to extricate yourself from it and build your own little life. I also don't think it's like good for your mental health and your like burnout factor to actually think that like you are going to achieve these tangible goals necessarily, but you are doing it anyways because what else would you do?
1: Yeah.
2: Thank you for that.
1: Totally, we've had to reckon with that uh, ourselves quite a bit, you know. And and as you said, extricating the expectation of victory from from the desire to win, uh, or from from the desire to do something right to to act and and doing that thing without uh, without a sense of of highly specified intentionality, you know, like like granting yourself, I I guess, the humility of acknowledging that uh, that. You can't really predict what those actions will lead to, you know, even if you have an idea in mind of what you want Um, and And and, and doing it anyway.
2: And also removing the sort of socialized, you're you're making me realize this, removing the socialized kind of like thinking of like, I do this thing because I get X. Right. Right. The
1: transactional thing. The transactional
2: Mm -hmm. nature of like, you know, how we relate to a system, how we relate to what we define as success that your you and chris hedges are actually saying like it's the doing that is the that is the positive piece right talk
1: about mm-hmm. you know co-opting opposition that's a purely capitalist transactional thinking right thinking i have to do this thing in order to get you know i i do x and receive y yep. you know and, and instead just <laughs> just doing the
3: damn thing mm-hmm. um so
1: thank you yeah. for sharing
3: that that's great yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, the real surplus value are the friends we made along the way. <laughs> yes.
1: Okay, but like, up. really, they like are? <laughs> Give me that on a t-shirt or a pen. I'll wear yeah. it. <laughs>
5: so, uh, what is this, some kind of psychic TV type parallelism?
0: Well, we all know the, the psychic powers of the televised image, but we need to capitalize on it and Make it work for us instead of us working for it. To me, my thing is a, a video image is much more powerful and useful than an actual event. Like back when I used to go out when I was last out, I was walking down the street and this guy like came barreling out of a bar fell right in front of me, and he had a knife right in his back. Well, I have no reference to it now. I can't refer back to it. I can't press rewind. I can't put it on pause. I can't put it on slow-mo and see all the little details. And the blood, it was all wrong. It didn't look like blood. And the hue was off, and I couldn't adjust the hue. I was seeing it
1: for real, but it just wasn't right. You know, one of the things that I, I wanted to talk about, and really one of the last points I, I have is, link later as a as a filmmaker and and seeing this as as an extension or really as the you know kind of inciting point of of his whole project as an artist um i i think that you know he he has made a lot of various (laughs) different kinds of films you know one of my favorites being um his philip k dick adaptation um a scanner darkly with like keanu reeves woody harrelson robert downey jr um, but one in that same rotoscope style, like Waking Life. He's done the before trilogy, boyhood. Um, but but one thing that i've I've noticed as a through line in all of his work is uh, something that feels especially prescient when discussing this film, which is his sort of fascination and obsession with like the the about liminal spaces of being, right? You know, in in waking life and scanner Darkly, it's that distinction between being awake and dreaming you know what is reality and and what is our our own perception you know whether that is being an item or or not being being in love or not being as in like the before trilogy or being young and versus being old like days and confused you know um and and i think that this film is really interesting because it it presents that same kind of liminal space but doesn't require you to see it as two sides of a coin or like a space that's occupied before people make the jump. You know? I think it's a brilliant sort of celebration of and of that slacker, right? <laughs> as we keep saying, it is it's empathetic to that thing and doesn't resolve to say these people are in a transitionary space or or you know, in the sort of transitive area where they have to buy in or they will become the suits. you know, I think it I think it presents it without really needing to to grant the alternative any sort of attention it it does very much just like in passing right the guy in the suit who Mm -hmm. uh is suffering from oxygen deprivation but um i i think that this film is really special in, in its exploration of that by by not not defining the alternative
3: and i think in a lot of ways the alternative was still sort of even though it was um the pieces were beginning to be put in place like it was early enough in the 90s that it wasn't fully realized and not even fully realized but like realized to a point where like i don't know if link later even maybe could articulate specifically what the alternative was it was obviously uh happening slowly in like slow motion or like you know the, the sort of beginnings of what we currently know as like modern neoliberalism but like and i thought that was one of the really really fascinating parts of the the film too yeah it was like like i mentioned at the beginning like this guy it's like 19 oh i guess it was shot in 89 like you said this Mm -hmm. guy's talking about global warming in a very like a way that seems obvious to us now uh but this was the 30 years ago right and like There are all of these sort of like, you just get the sense that, um, like you mentioned earlier, there's like this menacing, foreboding, ambient quality that, like, we, looking back, are like very aware of what's about to happen, but the characters and probably Linklater, like, wasn't fully sure, like, what was happening, but there was something, like, awry, <laughs> so to speak. Yes. Um, and I think that's like a lot of 90s movies do have that sort of. Uh, implicit sort of not fully articulated foreboding menacing quality that like especially as viewers looking back we can sort of we see now Um, but yeah it really shows like how sort of astute you know Linklater was in his um, his analysis and and not even like explicit analysis but just like the way that the, the film moves and the way that things are subtly presented you know that he knows that kind of has an idea of what's around the corner but yeah it's not it's not fully articulated it's not presented like you said Erin, in an explicit sort of way like this is the alternative and this is Mm -hmm. uh, you know what the slackers are are fighting against it's like at that point no one really knew i think what they were fighting against as much as they knew that like something felt wrong in the atmosphere maybe i don't know that's just sort of my my like ideas on it but
2: no you nailed it and link Leader actually says as much in an interview later like you're you're perfectly encapsulating what he describes his experience to be he said in an interview later that he gets a lot of people saying like yeah this this film has this like feeling of of anxiety of like something as you said around the corner and he's like yeah I think like in the 80s there was just like an undercurrent of apocalypse like that was just there and like he even acknowledges that like he didn't set out to recreate that, but that it just fell onto the screen, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's it's what was actually there. So I think you're absolutely right. Like, I don't I don't know that he could articulate it exactly himself, but he was uh, reflecting back to us something very real. And this ties into one final point I want to bring up, which is related to what you were talking about as well, Aaron, um, which is Linklater's sort of, manipulation of and and questioning of reality and and his toying with artifice um which he does in a lot of his films boyhood is one in particular that i think of where like he he follows the the trajectory of this this real boy over the course of like i think 12 plus years um and formally does a lot of interesting things and sort of makes you ask like questions about like yeah when we're seeing like someone age in a movie like whatever there's a lot there but in this movie in particular he's uh particularly in the character that he plays at the outset of the movie as you mentioned Robbie um when he's talking about you know uh he's on this diatribe in the taxi cab and he's talking about this dream that he had where like the dream uh actually didn't end up being about anything other than just like him reading a book, or him sitting on a bus, and he was like, "It was very strange." This dream just sort of, you know, put me down this path of like questioning reality. And he mentions, uh, you know, the conversation that he had with someone else about like, you know, positing that uh, every thought we think and every sort of decision we didn't make um, is an alternative reality, going down another path that exists somewhere, but we don't see it. We're stuck in this one. And formally, the movie recreates that experience for us, right? We connect with all of these characters along the way, and then you know we're with them for a fleeting handful of moments and they move past and, and we know that their reality is continuing. We know that that person, uh, even once they've left the screen, is still going to exist, but we're now focused on this this other person, this other vignette. And he's even explicit about the fact that he's reminding us that these people are still existing, even once they leave our purview in a few key moments, one of which is when the man who can't get the newspaper out of the machine, who is also the man who, when he passes two women talking, the woman turns to her friend and says... He's going to be dead within a fortnight.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: We uh, he leaves he leaves our our uh, frame, and we don't hear anything from him again except for a car screeching to a halt, some sort of an impact, and a man saying, "Hey, watch where you're going." Linklater is reminding us this reality is continuing, even though mm-hmm. we can't see it, even mm-hmm. though uh, it's no longer in our purview, and so this. Uh, this sort of questioning of of what is real and uh, what what is artificial? And if that question even matters, right? is something that I find um, nests really nicely with this sort of, uh, real-world undercurrent of anxiety that we're talking about, that it often manifested in this question of what is real. Um, and we see this in a lot of the films of the 90s. It's a, it's a thesis we've come back to on our show time and time again. And one thing in particular that I, I just want to make sure we mention, because it's one of my favorite, favorite moments from the movie, is when I think it's... I don't remember which characters were actually talking about this... But there were characters that were talking about Elvis impersonators. You guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah,
1: it's uh, it's the guy who's driving the van, and they're trying to get yes. into the friend's show near the end. Um, That's right. And and hoping that he's on the list. He like picked up this girl right. and her friends. And right. They don't know one another, and they're trying to get into the show. But he's talking about uh, Elvis being alive, right? And and potentially being an impersonator of himself he's
2: positing uh that elvis is alive and that he's actually impersonating himself at the peak of like his own parody of his career or whatever he's sort of saying all this stuff and it got me thinking about elvis impersonators as a really interesting manifestation of the question that link later is asking us which is like what is artifice anyways if we are seeing an elvis impersonator and for all intents and purposes he's." giving me an Elvis experience like does it matter that he's not Elvis does it matter is he actually Elvis in some way like it sort of made me go down this rabbit hole Mm. of of thinking about that question manifesting itself kind of really beautifully and almost sort of morosely in the figure of an Elvis impersonator Um, which also ties back to the man with the TVs where he is kind of arguing that I had blood splash on me in this horrible exchange where this woman was stabbed and the blood didn't feel real. I couldn't change the color to make it feel more red that the the red that would feel more real to me. Mm -hmm. And it's in these televised experiences that I find more reality. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I bring this up because I think like there's a very direct line of this question being tied to what you're talking about, Robbie, which is this, this kind of animating anxiety in the 90s that we couldn't quite name.
3: It, I, there's, like, a term, I think, for what you're describing, and I, I don't think it's hyper-reality that sounds wrong, but, like, I don't know, where my my mind goes is, is like, we, especially, like, because, um, like, technology has advanced so much, like, I don't know, you... For example, like, watching... The documentary series like planet earth or whatever it's like hmm. the the sense of like immersion and like reality that you get from watching something sometimes is like almost more real than like say you were out there like with david attenborough like filming like the reality has become so fluid i guess and there's like you know there's real life and then there's like you know online media or whatever and the two seem to like blend in and out of each other quite a bit and it's hard to sort of like separate the two in a, a lot of ways and sometimes like the experiences that we have um that would otherwise be you know not quote real experiences like watching the movie or like experiencing something are more vivid feel more real than actual reality and sometimes reality is like kind of boring in comparison to those that experiences. And yeah, I don't know, know really where to go from, from there in terms of, like, well, from, I think yeah.
5: There,
2: there is just one thing I wanted to say in response to what you said, which is that you're, you're also making me realize too that there is kind of a perversion in this insistence that a mediated reality is somehow more real and that that might be a coping mechanism for us living in the late stages of capitalism right when we've sort of built these mediated realities as an escape for all intents and purposes right there are lots of reasons we go to social media when we don't want to like do something manually or just like exist with our feelings like in the present moment right and so you're also making me realize that maybe this question of like well, is this more real is is also a trick we're playing on ourselves, like that we're, we're maybe telling ourselves that it is more real as some sort of like perverted justification of like our ennui, you know, sort of forcing us into these mediated spaces. Mm. I think I oscillate back and forth between, you know, both sides of that coin. There are times when I feel sort of most alive, most connected to uh, like what living would be, finger quotes, when I'm like, near the water or like, you know, like not near anything sort of mediated at all. And then there are times when I have really important, thoughtful and like illuminating experiences that happen online or in a conversation over a video chat. Right. So I think it I think it depends, but it also could be it could be a trick we're playing on ourselves.
1: Well, I think, you know, in the context of the film itself. Linklater really succeeds at making a film that feels much larger than the film that he's actually made, you know, because of all of these threads that he he allows us to pull only briefly and then doesn't come back to. You know, we see things happening or, or at least understand and know that things are happening in these little lives and experiences outside of the frame, right? We know that a man may potentially killed his mother and is going to jail. We know that another man, like, you know, has been... Uh, kind of marked for death by a psychic, and that he is going to walk around for the next two weeks and and might die. You know, we we know these guys are going through breakups. You know, and and dealing with with the struggle there. We know these little kids are going to grow up eventually and probably steal things larger than Coca Colas from a machine. You know, and like mm-hmm. all of these little threads get pulled, all of these little lives happen, and within you know 110 minutes, we see more human interaction and more moments than we would ever be able to see in a a full 24 hour day. Mm. Mm. And so, you know, there, there is something about that mediated reality that I I think in what he's doing is attempting to thread all of those things together and reinforce a connectedness that's lost because of the atomization of culture under neoliberalism. Mm. Yeah. Mm, mm. You know, and I, I think that in that way, he succeeds, you know, uh, very remarkably. You know I, I think he does a great job i think he's made one of the great american movies honestly um and it's telling too you know that his inspiration is not american cinema um it, it's it's very much an art house film that has become yeah. sort of like the the icon of of independent uh american cinema but you know when when you talk to a, a kevin smith or a, a quentin tarantino and, and tarantino may be different you know because he's more invested in world cinema and like pulp you know but these people have like a, a, a tremendous amount of, of love and fascination with with classic Hollywood and and Linklater is talking about you know pulling most of his inspiration from like Robert Bresson and, and Yasujiro Ozu you know like these these art house you know international filmmakers who are making very quiet very sparse films and and just like very lyrical and dense and. The the structure of this movie too is likened to like uh, Max Offel's uh, La Ronde and and a lot of Luis Bunuel, like uh, surrealist cinema. So he, he's playing here in in a narrative style and structure that is way outside of the confines of what is normally considered like mm. mainstream American Hollywood uh, film, yeah. and and somehow manages to to I think make a greater statement about American culture than most people who who make. Uh, similar attempts with bigger budgets and and better actors and longer run times
3: yeah absolutely can i just say i really really appreciate uh both of your depths when it comes to like knowledge on on film like it's really incredible this guy knows his shit uh, (laughs) i didn't recognize a single name that you uh just (laughs) just brought up so I, i don't know how much i can respond to that but i do yeah i do think that it does have a very art house feel to it while at the same time not necessarily having that sort of uh and and i am not saying this in in like a negative way but there's like no pretension to this film at all like it's Mm -hmm. just there it's real it feels real even though it's like it, it like the opening scene is like a hit and run and like the way that everybody is like responding to this is like Bizarre, like they're casually walking up to this, like what looks like a dead body, and just being like, Oh, yeah, you got this? You're gonna call someone? Cool, I gotta bounce. And then, like, this guy's like hitting on one of the like, he's like hitting, like, hitting on, on someone.
5: Yeah. At, Take
3: at my the card. scene give of me a call, <laughs> and it's like, That's <laughs> you know, it's like absurd, but it's also like, I don't know, it, it just doesn't seem it, it, the way that it's done, just it's like it doesn't feel fake necessarily it doesn't mm-hmm. feel contrived it's just, no you know, it's
2: like the banalities of our reality are actually quite insane right that's the thing that i kept thinking about when i was watching this movie that like the the matter of factness i think reveals um you know sort of the absurdity of just like our our modern existence that that you can find in these really quiet moments yeah and like I think Linklater even, too, was talking about, you know, the fact that he has these he, these shots that are pretty close in and that also he has really long takes mm-hmm. and, like, tracking shots, right? Mm-hmm. And that that reminds us of what we're not seeing and, like, sort of mirrors this idea that, that I keep bringing up that I think is very intentional on his part that, like, stuff is still happening outside of our purview but we just can't see it and these 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 beautiful long tracking shots but that are you know pretty tight in on a person or a couple of people really emphasize that um mm-hmm. you find yourself like you know, on the one hand, wanting to uh, know sort of spatially where they are and orient yourself. But he also does a really great job of like making you not really care about it. Like I was I found myself Mm -hmm. like leaning forward when we were watching this movie because I was so engaged and engrossed in what people were saying. And I was hanging on every word that, yeah, I was aware that there was stuff that I was missing. But I also he made me appreciate what was right in front of me.
3: Edge of your sleep, edge of your seat, thriller. Edge of your seat, thriller. (laughs) GM, Robert Raymond (laughs) on slacker. Um, Robbie, is there
1: anything else that you wanted to bring up before we, before we wrap up?
3: I always ask this question at the end of when I'm interviewing someone and they always say, no, no. And then they like go off for five minutes about some amazing (laughs) thing. That's the best. Yeah. But I don't know if I have anything. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, no, I just, uh, I I love this conversation. Yeah. It's just brought up so many great threads and great conversations. So yeah, I just really appreciate both of you for your depth of knowledge and analysis. And yeah, I had a really good time talking to you about it.
2: Oh, the feeling is mutual. And we are so grateful that you suggested this film. We were like looking at each other throughout the movie and we were like, like, how have we not talked about this movie yet? It's like, so perfect there's so much in there and i'm so glad you suggested it because you know a lot of the threads that we've pulled in this conversation ravi have have um helped me think about and articulate some more nebulous feelings that i've been sort of reckoning with myself just in real life um and sort of where i'm at at this stage in my life and trying to find work and what does that even mean and uh and Um, So I appreciate this conversation because, um, you know, I think there's a lot here and and it allowed us to talk about things that we enjoy talking about on this show politics and the, the politics of the 90s in particular informing our current moment, but personally also just like got my wheels turning about some questions that have come up in my own life. Yeah. Also. So really thanks to Rick Linklater for that. Yeah.
1: Thanks to Rick Linklater and to you, Robbie. Yeah. This conversation has been fantastic. Um, I I did want to share one final anecdote because I like this. Do um, it. You're the five minutes talking more guy. That's the five minutes talking more guy. Um, always and forever. Uh, well, I don't know about either of you, but I, I grew up in uh, the Midwest and went to school at, uh, a, a state university relatively small town but like a 30,000 uh student population you know and and my town my college town reminds me a great deal of Austin uh and we had uh, a local kind of cut of filmmakers and one of which made a film on a shoestring budget with a bunch of his friends that is about like the aimlessness of like College and the post-college years, and and these guys just trying to figure out how to find love and how to find success, and ultimately just doing a lot of drugs and drinking together and having no real direction and purpose in life. And it came together, you know, uh, I think maybe the year before I I actually entered college, but was like a, a local legend and screened all the time at like one of the small theaters, and was like this like triumphant success of like the city and and the the art scene there. And I. I find that slacker you know gets talked about in the same way by by a lot of people writing about it and, and watching some clips of of the cast and and you know the city of austin celebrating it but there's something about slacker uh that feels immediately special about it that feels like it transcends that just kind of like uh local like iconic piece of like movie making um the way that this other picture which i i won't mention by name because it, it, it's fun but whatever uh you know <laughs> um but I, I do recall, you know, in in the the marketing for that that film um, that, that came out of my college town, nearly every pull quote mentioned something about its relationship to this film. Mm-hmm. Called it Slacker Heaven or Seinfeld meets Slacker. Um, so, you know, if, it, I don't think there's any uh, better articulation of the legacy and the impact of this film than, you know, some 25 years later when I'm, you know, in college, 20 years later, I guess, uh, that that people are still uh, comparing independent you know shoestring budget cinema to it as like mm. this the staple, so um, I think it's just a really, really special picture. I think that it's uh, yeah as, as Carly said, one that i can 't believe we haven 't talked about i can't believe i hadn't seen before, and so really, really indebted to you, Robbie, for for bringing it to us. Um, so thank you again. Uh, where can people find you and your work, Robbie?
3: Um, yeah, and I'm just thinking about how many cool, like, local films out there that we don't know about, right? I um, know, yeah, for, for <laughs> really that'll be our project. The but.
2: three of us will just send each other <laughs> movies that we will never yes, ever see otherwise.
3: Absolutely. Um, I, I don't have like a centralized place. Uh, the podcast is, um, we have our website upstreampodcast.org, but we're on, uh, anywhere that you listen to your podcasts, upstream. And yeah, I I write uh, intermittently here and there for like Truthout and HuffPost and Baffler and some other uh, outlets, Shareable. Um, I also have another podcast called The Response which uh, put out through Shareable and it's very similar. The first two seasons were very similar to Upstream because they had a pretty good budget and we were making like documentaries. Um, The idea behind the podcast is how Uh, communities respond to natural or, you know, in in quotes, you know, natural disasters. We've done, we did episodes on Occupy Sandy and um, like how the undocumented community has been impacted by California wildfires and Grenfell Tower and um, Puerto Rico and the hurricane and and, uh, yeah, that's at theresponsepodcast.org. the latest season is mostly just a lot of panel discussions and intervie- interviews because we haven't had the budget or really because of COVID, the ability to go out and the field and stuff. But, so that's that. And yeah, that's, that's where, where my stuff is online.
2: I will just give a plug, uh, myself. Robbie is not paying me to say this, that, uh, upstream is in the middle of their fall fundraiser, um, right now, as of this recording date in July, uh, please go donate to their work because, uh, it's wonderful and important. And I learn a thousand things every time I listen to an episode or, uh, consume one of the documentaries. Um, and that's the kind of stuff we should be supporting.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Like Marvel
2: movies are fine, but <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, Take, take the money uh, that you would have donated to our Patreon this month and give it to upstream podcasts for their no. fundraiser. They're doing way more important work than we are here. Um, but it's we just, do all right. We do all right. Uh, I, I was going to say, I don't know if I agree with that last part. But, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, no, but really, so of course, no, we, we just, we're happy to support. And, and we do, we just, we adore the show. It's like, it's one of our favorites uh, to listen to and, and to talk about and always yields discussions for countless hours, um, you know. And uh, yeah, it's just it's just fantastic work. Go listen to uh, everything that this this gentleman makes. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess I'll I'll plug our stuff too. You know, we can do it. Yeah, we can. <laughs> you can find us um, at hustle. Hit, hustle. You can follow us at Hit Factory Pod um, across platforms. Uh, Carly runs the Instagram. I run the Twitter. That's my where I tweet from exclusively. So lots of I and me statements on there. Um, so don't don't be alarmed. Uh, you My can, English teacher
2: would not approve. I,
1: I know. <laughs> uh, you can uh, subscribe to us if you if you do have some uh, extra funds left over uh, after donating to Upstream uh, and and want to support the show and really like what we do here. Uh, we're at Patreon.com/slash/HitFactoryPod. I will, as always, give a a plug and thank you to our capitalist overlord, Linda. Uh, and uh, we will catch you all next time. Thanks, everyone.
5: The stage, the set of talk becomes slow, but there's one thing.